1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome, and thank you for joining me today for a conversation with Carrie J. Preston about her recent book, Learning to Kneel, No Modernism and Journeys in Teaching. This is a, a Columbia University Press book that came out in 2016. It's a super exciting book, and in part that has to do with not just the story it's telling, but also the way it tells that story. So integral to the research um, and the work that Carrie did, as she'll um, talk about in a few moments, was her own experience um, taking lessons in no chant, taking lessons in no dance, in drumming, writing plays based on these models, teaching, um, producing, choreographing dances with no related gestures, and you'll hear us talking about that in a moment, and that really um, threads through the entirety of the book, and it feels organic also to the arguments that the book is making. So one of the things you'll hear us talk about is the centrality throughout the book of the insight that no, um, as a form of drama, is centrally concerned with um, pedagogy, teaching, and so what we get in a narrative that very explicitly brings in Carrie's own experience as a teacher and student and reflections on that kind of relationship, what we get is not just a, really a, a series of breaths of fresh air um, in the narrative that open the book out um, in ways that are really exciting, but we also get a, a multi-layered reflection on the connection Um, Between know and pedagogy, between performance and pedagogy, that really fingers through um, every single part of the work that the book is doing. It's really interesting, it's really important, and it's really effective, I think. So there's um, a special chapter, you'll hear us talking about this in the moments to come, that is a pedagogical intermission um, in which Carrie gives us a lesson plan and relates her own experiences in a graduate seminar um, in ways that are really exciting. And you'll also hear us talking about a website that exists as a companion to the book where listeners or readers can look um, to find other kinds of pedagogical materials and lesson plans and exercises that might be useful in teaching with the book or teaching with some of these ideas. So I will let you um, get to it. It's a fairly extensive interview, but I'll also say that one thing that you'll hear coming up and one, for me, particularly surprising part um, of this interview and of the experience of reading the book is how much it feels so much of the moment right now, even though this came out last year, right? It's extraordinarily timely. And you'll hear us talking about themes such as fascism, nationalism, um, and and all kinds of related issues that if anybody um, is awake and alive and reading the news here in early 2017 and has any interest in what's going on um, globally, not just in the U.S., there will be um, much of interest here to think with in ways that might surprise you, um, given the thematic um, or kind of topical focus of the book. Okay, so this is to say it's fascinating. um, It's really elegantly and eloquently written and produced. It's super timely, and it's also um, really beautiful. And so with that, thank you for listening. I hope you get the chance to get your hands on the book, to explore the website, um, and I hope you enjoy the, the interview to come. I'm here today to talk with Carrie J. Preston about her new book, Learning to Kneel. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Carrie, and thank you, first of all, for writing such an exciting book. And I think we'll talk in the next hour about what is so exciting um, about this book, but also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to the podcast, and it's great to have you here.
0: Thanks so much, and thanks for the invitation.
1: Of course. So let's start with the traditional question. For the channel. How did you come to work on the study of modernism and performance? Because this isn't your first book, right? Um, You've got a a pretty long scholarly career before this. And so how did you come to work in this field?
0: So I really came to learning to kneel through the figure of Ito Michio. Uh, When I was writing my first book, Modernism's Mythic Pose, I was doing a lot of research in the Isadora Duncan Dance Archives at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts. And I came across a review of a Japanese dancer, Ito Michio, a man who was performing um, some of Isadora Duncan's iconic solos um, like Mother and Lullaby. And I was really curious about how he learned this choreography. And at some point... I recalled that um, a Japanese dancer had worked with W.B. Yeats and Ezra Pound on some dance plays that had interested me in graduate school. Lo and behold, it was in fact Ito Machio who had worked with Yeats and Pound and others in London um, in 1916. And as I began to track Ito's career as a dancer, um, I realized that there was a whole story about his collaboration and then um, how the ancient Japanese theater form known as no, that's N-O-H. But of course there are plenty of jokes um, about not being, not knowing no, nobody knows no theater. Um, All of those kinds of jokes are out there. Um, So no influenced modernism quite profoundly. uh, And, it was a story that really hadn't been told. So my focus shifted from an interest in Ito's life and collaborations to tracking how no shaped modernist theater performance, dance, and ultimately poetics entered into the story as well.
1: So the book tells the story, and this is in the words of the book, of the global circulation of no-inspired performances and the ways they affected the arts of the 20th century, mainly drama, poetry, modern dance, film, and popular entertainment. And this is from the book itself. Now, the book emphasizes um, in a lot of ways the physicality of no lessons, the challenge of being still, the pain of kneeling in a particular position. Um, You explain early on in the book, in the introduction, In No, pedagogy and performance are deeply intertwined. Now, one of the really fascinating things about the book is that the story of your own lessons in No chants, dance, and drumming, and your experience writing plays based on No models Choreographing dances with no related gestures is woven throughout the book as one of the main kind of integral threads, really um, throughout the chapters. I really, really loved that, Um, and I'd like to, um, I'd like if you could talk a little bit about that decision in terms of how you envisioned and then created the book um, as as an object.
0: I had not planned for that to be part of the story, Um, although it was so much fun to incorporate that into the book. Um, Again, for my first book, I studied Isadora Duncan's technique and choreography and it certainly shaped the way I could write about Duncan as a dancer um, and, and shaped the way I could write about movement from the perspective of someone who had actually learned the technique and, and struggled to learn the dances. So, that has become part of my methodology when writing about performance. I, As I began to do the first, the first rounds of, of research, the sort of literary review part of research, I was really dissatisfied with how many people, um, how many critics said, uh, I, don't, I really don't know anything about the No Theater, but Yates and Pound knew even less and sort of left it at that. And, and I thought that was um, kind of a cop-out, actually, for a, a critic and a scholar. And I decided that I wanted to learn as much as possible about the no theater. And it quickly became clear to me that uh, knowing no, know, learning no, involved taking lessons. Um, pedagogy, in the part that you quoted earlier, um, pedagogy is so crucial to this theater form. Um, and and that's really different from any kind of uh, experience I've had learning an art form. Uh, the teacher is celebrated um, The uh, very frequently. The teacher is there in the theater, often kneeling as one of the koken at the back of the stage. Um, if if the performer uh, makes a mistake, the teacher might step up and step in and, and correct or start chanting. I've, I've seen this happen um, in a professional play. A teacher starts chanting from the back of the stage and correcting the performer who has messed up the chant or gone to a different part in the play, typically. Um, so this is really different from, um, you know, taking piano lessons and going out and um Performing the piece you've learned, and the teacher might be watching, but would very rarely step in or in Western theater, if you make a mistake, you're supposed to hide it as much as possible, and the show must go on inevitably um, so th- so this is this is a very different relation to pedagogy to the relationship between teachers and students um, than in any theater form that I had learned previously. Um, I was. I was so fascinated by my experience living in Tokyo and taking lessons that as I began to draft the chapters, I allowed myself to include part of that story briefly in the introduction um, and thought that then I had to go back and, and write a, a kind of standard critical narrative. Like I got the story out of the way and then I would um, I would focus on the figures that I was writing about and, and the pieces that I was discussing. But I got one really excellent review back when the press sent out the first few chapters for review. One of the reviewers said, this story is fascinating. That voice was the voice that I wanted to hear for the rest of the book. And um, I hope that the writer can continue to thread that part of the story, the, the part of taking lessons and the, and the personal voice through the rest of the book. Um, and so that, and my editor, who is fantastic, Philip Leventhal at Columbia University Press, um, encouraged me to pursue uh, that strategy and, and helped me actually learn to write that way. And it made all of the difference. This was such a fun book to write and I was able to come to some understanding of why no had become so important in my own life. Um, and, and why I felt like there was a different way to talk about the modernist artists interest in no, um, by thinking about how they in certain ways were taking lessons, how they were learning, um, both from figures who knew about no, um, learning in collaborative groups, um, trying to do research, becoming students of know in a way um, that allowed me to tell the story quite differently from the the way um, cultural appropriation kept popping up um, as the typical explanation for this material is, or the typical framework um, that surrounded this material. It it allowed me to have, in some ways, a more positive and optimistic approach to um, what is surely a a cultural appropriation, but is also much more than that.
1: And in fact, in the introduction, you talk about the ways that your lessons actually like actively change the emphasis of your research, right?
0: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Would you um, talk a little bit about that for us? Like, what were some of the main ways, and you, you do describe this in the book, but for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it, um, for you, what immediately comes to mind as um, aspects of your research that importantly changed as a result of this experience?
0: So when I had expected not to enjoy taking no lessons, um, I thought I I was being very dutiful and I would learn a lot. Um, but I had studied the the pedagogical format of the no lesson. You kneel at the beginning of each lesson and bow. Um, You spend most of the lesson on your knees. I thought that would be kind of humiliating, demeaning. There's a long history of misogyny in the no theater. So um, as a woman, I thought that would feel complicated. Um, And as a Westerner, I knew that I needed to be very humble and thankful for the opportunity to learn in this way. Um, but I went into my lessons with, with an assumption that I really wouldn't like it. And my experience couldn't have been more different. I loved taking lessons. I, um, valued the relationship that I developed with my teacher, um, and it, it was an exceptional relationship, a relationship that I hadn't had uh, very often with teachers in my life, um, I started to question basically all of my assumptions about what good teaching and what g- good learning meant. Um, so I, I, I teach in an English department and in a women's gender and sexuality studies program, and I had assumed that Um, the ideal of a democratic classroom um, was really the only kind of classroom that we should work for. We should Uh, seek casual relationships with our students, ones where we tried to diminish the hierarchies that are part of teaching and learning, or the ways that the teacher is in a position of power and the students are um, less powerful or or more submissive in a more submissive role. I had assumed that good teaching uh, would do all of that work. And this was such a different pedagogical experience. And yet, I found it very very powerful it gave me access to um the more ritualistic and even sacred aspects of the no theater it um it so the the pedagogical format was um very clearly tied to the goals of preserving an ancient repertory um and of inculcating certain kinds of values in the student um i I realized in this process that I needed to rethink some of my assumptions about good pedagogy um, and the ways that the attempt to foster a, a kind of casual democratic um, relationship with students was actually hiding the deep hierarchies that are ingrained in my own classrooms um, so most obviously I'm giving my students grades at the end of the semester and and on every assignment. Um, this isn't a casual relationship. It really is very much a professional relationship. I am not a friend to my students. Um, they are paying a lot of money to go to an American university. Um, so I realized that some of my attempts and I think at this, the standard culture, in an American classroom uh, actually concealed the truth of the hierarchies and the power differentials that are present in the classroom. And that the very codified and hierarchical pedagogy in the no lesson was in some ways more honest. Um, I couldn't immediately assume that my casual relationship with my students was preferable or that it fostered Uh, good learning um, that it was in fact very much a cultural performance that was different from the cultural performance I was experiencing in my no lessons in Japan but still very much a performance not more authentic as we might uh, tend to assume that being casual is is more authentic in the U.S. Um, so it really challenged the way I think about teaching and learning, um, and has impacted, in fact, the the way that I conduct my classrooms now.
1: Great, um, and in fact, uh, some of what you just mentioned, especially the significance of submission, right, and the theme of submission and humility, mm. these keep coming up throughout the book. Um, And this really nicely takes us, I think, to the first chapter where you talk about the significance of humility and submission in performing um, a particular piece called The Feather Mantle or Hagoromo. So this Mm -hmm. chapter looks at Ezra Pound and W.B. Yeats' collaboration um, with the person that you mentioned at the very beginning. This is Ito um, Michio. Um, And central to this chapter is the translation and performance and impact of this particular piece, right? The Feather Mantle. Now, since this is a piece we're going to keep coming back to, as a way of maybe opening or starting to open this up for listeners, could you briefly describe um, the kind of what we need to know about this performance? Um, What is the Feather Mantle? And what are some of the key things listeners need to know as we move forward in the book?
0: Sure. Um, So this is... Probably the most popular no play, one of the most frequently done in Japan. Um, and it's an incredibly beautiful one. It was also the favorite of Yeats and Pound as they began learning about no and producing translations of no plays together. I'm using translation very broadly there, Um a Hageromo, the feather the feather mantle. Um, this story is a fisherman on a beautiful spring day, um, comes across a beautiful robe of feathers and wants to take it and keep it as a treasure for the realm. Um, he is approached by a young maiden who says, "Give me back." the robe. Um, He says, no, it's a treasure. I'll keep it. She begs and um, tells him that she is in fact a moon maiden, a celestial being, and that without the robe, she won't be able to fly back to her home in the moon. Um, He still refuses. um, And then he watches her start to die the death of mortals, So she has flowers in her hair and they start to wilt. Um, and he learned sympathy. And of course, this is a, a Buddhist lesson, um, about not clinging to material objects like the robe that, that he holds in his hands and also having sympathy, um, for another creature, um, so he says that he'll give it back if she promises to teach him the dance that that turned the moon, um, the dance that that the moon maidens do in the in the palace of the moon. And um, she agrees. She she says it would be a good thing to leave a dance for the sad mortal world below. Um, but she needs her robe to to perform the dance he initially, the fisherman, is suspicious and says that um, he won't return it because she'll just fly off and and not teach. And and she becomes angry then and and says, um, deceit is for mortals. Uh, We don't tell lies. The the celestial beings don't tell lies. So he's ashamed again, gives her back her robe, um, and she performs the sacred dance. Um, And this is one of the... basically it's, it's a myth about how no came and then no dancing came to the world. Um, so that's one of the interesting features of, of the play is that, um, within the play that it tells the story of, of how no dancing was learned from a celestial being, one of, one of the myth, origin myths of no. Um, and it's, it's, it's also, um, a, a lovely play, um, the dancing is, I think, particularly gorgeous. The fan work in in the choreography is very beautiful.
1: Now, the chapter considers how No influenced Ezra Pound's work, especially in terms of his imagism and his translation theory. And you talk about, among other things, um, the ways in which uh, Pound is actually identifying with the figure of this fisherman that you just mm. described. Um, you mm-hmm. also br- very briefly mentioned um, translation, right, as being uh, a particularly interesting issue in this case, and this is one of the really interesting things for me that's happening in this chapter. So what the chapters doing, among other things, is urging us to rethink an understanding of Pound's translation um, and his translation work as so-called like mistranslation or misrepresentation, um necessarily uh, considering these as flaws. And instead, what the chapter does is it uses the case of Pound to direct our attention to what you call the errors and creativity that are present in any translation. So here, translation becomes an opportunity for what you call creative misunderstanding. Um, Carrie, could you speak to that a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, the typical critical uh, account of Pound's No Translations Um has looked at all of the errors and, and there are many errors. Pound was working from draft translations that were produced, um, by the American Orientalist Ernest Fenelosa, um, with the help of, um, his student Hirata. And they, they were producing draft translations. So that They could go see no plays and that Fenelosa could take lessons. Um, these translations uh, were sent to Pound by Fenelosa's widow, and he knew almost no Japanese when he started editing them and finishing them. Um, so there there are plenty of errors. One of the things that interests me, um, and one of the reasons I wanted to shift away from an account of the errors, um, which had actually, you know, it's embarrassing in some ways. Critics have been embarrassed by this material for good reason. Um, but if you get beyond the embarrassment and look at some of the decisions that Pound was making in the translations, you can actually see the development of his thought um, towards imagism and the preparation for him to write his, his great uh, opus, The Cantos, um, Mm-hmm. So he was making, in, in, and I look at this in Hagaromo, he was changing the language and the images of Hagaromo so that they would fit his theory of connected images, um, leading to uh, a trope, a, a, a series of metaphors, continued metaphors um, that would lead to some kind of new understanding um, and He was trying to find a way to move from the very brief imagist poems that he had written in a station of the Metro being the most famous and the brief imagist poems that he had um, promoted to think about how to write a long imagist poem, um, one that could still abandon traditional poetic form and yet find some kind of structure through the repeated images and tropes that those images and metaphors would create. He believed that he found that technique in no. Um, largely, he translated that technique into the no plays. Um, I mean, in, in some ways, he mistranslated the no plays to provide the technique and structure for him. Um, and then they, you know, so he was looking for something and he found what he was looking for partially by by changing what was there in front of him. Mm-hmm. And as you suggested, um, the technique that he believed he learned in the no plays then became a technique that he took to the long poem that he would work on the rest of his life. And if you look at the cantos and particularly the Pisan cantos, which is the the um, section of the cantos that I focus on most in that chapter. No is present everywhere. And actually his collaboration on the No plays, the work he did with Ito and Yeats um, is part of the story behind the Pisan cantos. Um, Ito and Yates both appear as characters in the Pisan cantos. So uh, it's fascinating to me that Hagaromo um, both provided the structure, sort of the lesson that, that Pound needed to get started on his next big project. Um, and then Hagaromo also appears as one of the lessons to be learned in the Pisan Cantos. Um, the lesson that the fisherman learns is a lesson that Pound believes he needs. To learn um, in his account of that poem, which is a rather dramatic poem. It it was written while Pound was stuck in a cage in Pisa um, and would soon stand trial for treason um, because of largely because of the the radio broadcasts in support of Mussolini um, that he had sent out into the world during World War II. So. Pound tells the story of his experience in the cage, which is where he he was writing these poems, um, the, the poem sequence, and Hagoromo becomes a structuring device and the lesson that he needs to learn, um, the lesson of, of humility, largely.
1: Mm-hmm. And in fact, the chapter actually, um, towards the end, talks about the challenges of teaching Pound's cantos and the connection... Mm-hmm. Right between the pleasures of submission and fascism, um, and you talk a little bit about why, um, despite or perhaps because of those challenges, in part, it's actually important to teach difficult texts like this. And since this is a particularly timely moment, perhaps yeah, yeah, it does feel these, that way. These issues, right? um, would mm-hmm. you, Do you want to speak to that a little bit?
0: Sure. The, that chapter ends um, with me, in fact, quoting my one of my students who felt like uh, the Pisan cantos should not be taught um, because there are plenty of celebrations of Mussolini, um, echoes of fascism in the cantos. Um, the whole story of Pound's incarceration is deeply troubling, and, um, he was largely in an experience of torture in this cage, exposed to the heat and the cold. Um, and this was really troubling for students. Um, I was shocked that my graduate students really hadn't known about Pound's fascism um, about his experience in Pisa and, and then his subsequent um, really he, he was imprisoned um, in a, a hospital for mentally insane um, for a number of years after this. They they found it all deeply troubling and um, the, the particular quote that I begin that section of the chapter with is um, this shouldn't be taught or at least not to undergraduates. Um, and it is really difficult to teach the Pisan Cantos. And I think it's also really difficult to teach uh, Noe's influence on modernism because we tend to be embarrassed. We want to, um, the, the great poets that we study, poets like Pound, who we believe really changed the face of poetry around the world. Um, we want them to be good people. We want them to, to have our values, we want them to respect culture, um, to have somehow anticipated the, the versions of multiculturalism and diversity that we would like to promote. We tend to want to write about figures who will do uh, that work for us, meaning that they will um, help us uh, teach those values in our writing. And all of this material um, is is really difficult. To, it to do that with Um, there was plenty of cultural misunderstanding and appropriation. And of course there's the fascism. uh, uh, There's a piece of the book that discusses um, how the no theater was used um, to promote Japanese fascism and militarization. This is all, um, this is all stuff that we wish hadn't happened. Um, And my, my position in the book is really that, this is all the more reason that we need to teach this kind of material because the world is so complicated. And if um, my graduate students were getting a version of modernism and a version of multiculturalism that was too rosy and too easy, then they were missing the real world. And and that was deeply troubling. And you're right that um, this seems all the more relevant today as as we face um, The the question of how to support our students, how to teach in a time um, where our country seems to be slipping into uh, more xenophobic, um, more misogynistic, uh, more racist patterns or or those those currents of of our world seem to be emerging and and being supported in the current U.S. administration Um, I think we need to bravely wade into this very, very difficult material with our students. And um, in the relative safety of a college classroom, that's a place to begin conversations about difficult topics to work towards a a form of civic discourse that I feel like is being um, constantly attacked. I don't see uh, civil discourse uh, happening in our country. Um, in the way that I, I would like it to be happening, um, so yes, I, I feel like it, it's all the more imperative at this moment.
1: And speaking of nationalism, <laughs> as hey. a theme that also comes up, this actually really go. nicely right brings us into the next chapter. Um, so chapter two looks closely at Yeats's "At the Hawk's Well" and its global journey, and it considers, among other things, the role played by the play in Yeats's nationalism, and in particular in his. Um, particularly transnational national nationalism mm-hmm. and in his vision for the Irish theater. Um, and it considers how Yeats adapted no for his own aesthetic and political purposes. Okay. So we could easily spend the rest of the time just talking about this chapter, right? It's fascinating. Um, we can't do that, but what I'd like to do is just give listeners a sense of just some of what's animating this. Um, now okay. this book, particular uh, piece at the Hawk's Well is a piece that we're going to see um, recurring throughout the book. So I think in order to at least be able to begin to trace that, um, could you say a little bit about, for you, what are some of the most important elements of this Yeats um, production at the Hawks Well um, that we need to know in order to be able to follow this then throughout the the rest of the chapters of the book for you basically like what's most fascinating about how he's adapting and adopting um, conventions of uh, from No in producing this piece.
0: Sure. Um, so the No play was heavily influenced by Hana Romo, the play that I described earlier that was fascinating to both Yates and Pound. Um, and in the play, um, the Irish mythic figure, Cahallan, um, is going in search of a well of immortality. Uh, he's traveled by boat to a forbidding island um, and comes across an old man and a young girl, uh, hawk girl, hawk maiden, the guardian of a well and um, the old man has been waiting by this well for the waters to come that will give him immortality for 50 years. Um, Cullin, uh says that, that he will wait, they'll share the water. Uh, the old man knows the patterns, um, sees this kind of glassy look in the guardian, the hawk maiden's eyes, and knows that the the water is about to come. The old man has gone through this repeatedly. He falls asleep when the water comes. Koholan um, insists that if necessary, he will pierce his foot to stay awake and um, and, and drink the immortal waters. Uh, in fact, uh, what happens in the course of the play is, is the kind of typical shimai or, or dance scene in a no play, um, both the old man and Kaholín, the young man, um, become enchanted in different ways by the dance of the hawk maiden, which, which was played in the original 1916 production by Ito Machio. Um, and the old man falls asleep. The young man Kaholín uh, becomes inculcated into uh, the warrior's life um, and is actually going to initially do battle. With the she, the the Irish mythic figures um, of the hills, and that begins Cuchulainn's journey as as an Irish hero. Um, some of the fascinating elements of No, in addition to the dance that that Yeats adopted, um, a chorus of simple instruments, um, drum beats that punctuate uh, both the the chant and um, the dialogue, um, seemingly uh, improvisationally, um, that was a a feature that Yeats adopted from the No Theatre chant itself. So Yeats had long been interested in a form of poetic speech that felt like chant, um, that felt like speech, as he, as he wrote, that became inflamed and was just approaching song. And he believed that, that the No Theater provided that model of chant and also uh, a set of movements that would do the kind of work his theater was meant to do. And in terms of nationalism, uh, the work that he wanted his theater to do was to teach the Irish people to value their myths and legends again. And he knew that the no theater um, took traditional Japanese myths and legends um, and reframed them in a theatrical mode. And so he hoped that using the no model, he could uh, develop a a national theater that would do that work, that that creative work um, to help an audience reconnect with a culture that had been um, all but destroyed by British imperialism in Ireland. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, one of the things that the book does is it traces a series of adaptations and revivals of the play. And you end Mm -hmm. this chapter with an account, a really fascinating account, of your own experience with an adaptation and revival of Hawke's Well at the 2013 Mellon School of Theater and Performance Research at Harvard. Um, This Mm -hmm. is another moment where, um, again, the weaving your own experience with the um, other elements of the narrative really um, makes the book come alive in a wonderful way. So would you want to speak a little bit to that here?
0: Sure. Um, At at the beginning of uh, the process of, of, kind of putting the structure of this book together after I had gone and taken lessons in the no theater, I had the incredible opportunity to teach an amazing group of students at the Mellon school um, in, in theater and performance research held at Harvard every summer. Um, it, it was a group that combined graduate students and um, large, largely junior faculty. And um, the topic of the school was world theater. So I used um, a lot of my research in know in shaping the seminar that I was teaching. And I gave uh, the students in my seminar um, materials I had gathered about at the, at the Hawkswell images. Um, I gave them some dance lessons, some no chant and, and movement lessons. I showed them a bit of the Ito technique that I had learned. Um, and what was amazing is that they took that. Oh, I had a, a, a the original score of the 1916 production pieces of the original score that I gave them. Um, they took these materials and decided to recreate at the Hawkswell um, for the school and to perform it on the last day of the school. It was a remarkable production, um, one that I felt really captured um the the kind of experience that we might have had in 1916 because it was in a a sort of drawing room environment um, for a coterie audience, we might say, an audience of people who were really interested in the theater, um, interested in in world theater, global theater. Um, And they made some fascinating choices. One of the choices that that I talked about as being incredibly moving is that Rather than having one dancer perform the um, dance of the guardian or the the hawk maiden, um, they chose to have three dancers of very different dance backgrounds, all three different ethnicities and races, um, and they each pulled from their own background in dance, their own dance training, to create a choreography that was very specific to them. Um, and somehow it, it felt to me like it really took um, those three dancers to kind of carry the burden of this play um, to to show both its power and, and in some ways it, its weaknesses um, or the weaknesses of the 1916 production. And um, they created a, an incredibly beautiful version of the play. Um, that, as a teacher, um, was inspiring. It was another moment where I feel like I feel this regularly. I learned more from my students than they learned from me.
1: So, and I'll, I'll mention. We'll come back to this theme, actually. Of your students and how amazing they are um we're going to talk about that in a moment when we get to the pedagogical intermission which was okay. epic um but I'll also mention for listeners at this point oh and there's o canada Moment right for Oh Canada. Here we go. Pause what happens when you're podcasting at noon in Vancouver. Moment <laughs> for nationalism. Um, now we we'll yes. move on. Um, I'll also mention for listeners um, that there's a really wonderful way that the book transcends its bindings um, insofar as there's a website um, that's a supplement to the book and I'll link to this on the post um, so that listeners can uh, look at the podcast posts and click there. But it includes right. several clips um, of performances and images um, from the um, – uh, plays and performances that you talk about. And in chapter two, um, there are links to several clips of yourself performing a number of no techniques from Hagoromo um, specifically. So I just want to mark that for listeners because it's a really wonderful resource and it really um, kind of, again, makes the book come alive in a wonderful way.
0: Can I mention one other thing about the website? Yeah. Um, There are also a series, one of the pages links to a series of exercises or or pedagogical tools um, so, if you're interested in teaching no or movement um, I, I there's a lesson about teaching Pisan the, the Pisan cantos um, i I was trying to think of various kinds of lessons that would work for different kinds of classes and so um, in that section there's are you teaching graduate students? Are you teaching world modernism? Um, are you teaching an undergraduate class, but would like to give them an experience of movement? Are you teaching dance history, but would like to insert Ito Michio, who's largely been lost from dance history? Um, so there, there are lots of different um, lesson plans basically laid out there. And I would love for them to be useful to other teachers.
1: Thank you. Um, And speaking of Ito Michio, there's a whole lot that we can talk about in Chapter 3. This is a chapter Mm. that continues the story of At the Hawks Well by looking at his career staging versions of the play along with other performance pieces. Um, Just in the interest of time, we won't have time to go into this in any detail, but he's a fascinating character. He's eventually jailed in the Mm. U.S. as an enemy spy shortly after the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor, Um, and the whole chapter just traces this super fascinating career. Now, one of the really interesting things that the chapter does is it uses his career and his efforts, among other things, to stage versions of At the Hawk's Well as a case study to, in the words of the book, trouble our pieties about bad Orientalism and good multiculturalism. Um, Since that's a really significant point that the book keeps coming back to, could you speak a little bit to that, Carrie?
0: Sure. Um, I think those pieties uh, about bad Orientalism, bad cultural appropriation um, and the flip side, good multiculturalism, good diversity, um, were part of what has kept Ito out of dance history. And and so that's one reason why I want to use his career to, to trouble those pieties. Um, Ito was very active in promoting his own career with many, many Orientalist stereotypes. And I think that, um, once again, embarrasses critics to some extent. Um, We would like him to have promoted versions of diversity. And we would like dance history to show um, that uh, the very early interest uh, many dancers had in other cultures and other ways of dancing and the the ways that particularly modern dancers in the early 20th century used other cultures to promote their creativity and and to um, undermine traditional forms of dance. We would like that to all fit a a comfortable narrative of um, sort of gradually working towards more multiculturalism and more sophisticated understandings of diversity, um, it, more satisfying ethical relationships with otherness, um, and Ito troubles um, that the narrative that, that we would like to have about that material and that history um, because he so actively orientalized himself. He promoted his career with orientalist stereotypes. Um, he actively borrowed not only from versions of Japanese dance, um, but from other cultural forms. And um, one of his famous pieces was called the tango. And it has nothing to do with the tango as an actual dance form, um, but, but called itself Tango. Um so so he's a really complicated figure and um he was he was forgotten from modern dance history in part because I think of this critical tendency to to find him embarrassing but then as you mentioned um he was arrested um interned after shortly in the two days after the bombing of Pearl Harbor um and eventually repatriated to Japan um and so that was part of the reason he was forgotten. And then the the reasons that he was reintroduced to dance history, that he he started to being reintroduced to dance history, um, are also very complicated. Uh, it would be very convenient if dance history could find someone um, not a, a white European or American um, to show the diversity present in, in dance. Um, so he seems to fit that bill. And yet, as I, as I argue in the chapter, he's actually much more complicated than that. Um, he, he doesn't tell a nice even story about multiculturalism. Um, so I want to use my, my account of his story to really trouble some of those pieties and show that, um, for one thing, we can't kind of hold figures to the versions of of multiculturalism, multiculturalism and diversity that uh, feel comfortable to us, but we can also understand them and um, use them to trouble our own sense that we've sort of got it right now. We're still very much struggling struggling with the same issues surrounding diversity um, that were present in the early 20th century. We haven't come so far. And I think a figure like Ito can really show us that.
1: Now we move from here to a pedagogical intermission. This is chapter four that offers readers a lesson plan um, really actively. It's really great, based on your experience teaching Brecht's revisions on some of his no inspired learning plays. Okay, we could again talk for an hour just about this chapter in this fascinating. We won't have time to, um, but it's uh, your experience and your accounts of your experience having done this in a graduate seminar, I think in 2014. Um, mm-hmm. This is so helpful to read about. And the student project by Paul J. Edwards that you describe at the end is completely epic. I mean, drop the mic, just just amazing. Um, so among we could talk about this endlessly, um, but what I'll do is just mark this for listeners and ask you to talk about something that comes up um, in this pedagogical intermission, and that also comes up throughout the book. So I think it's important for us to um, at least mark it in conversation, and that is the significance of um, you just talked about the challenges or the problems, perhaps, of assuming we're getting things right. Here, um, you talk about the significance of getting things wrong. Um, Now, the book repeatedly comes back to the significance of failure um, as a theme. Um, And this comes up here in this pedagogical intermission in a particularly interesting way. Um, But Carrie, would you speak to that for us, Um, your feelings about the significance of failure as it animates um, what's happening in the book?
0: sure, and i I have to say that I was so concerned that the pedagogical intermission would be a terrible failure in the book. Oh my God um, that, not at all. <laughs> I'm so glad I was afraid that readers would find it infuriating, and in fact at I wanted readers to find it infuriating at certain points, but to push on and and to continue reading nonetheless um because it's really it's an account of a kind of trick I played on my graduate students. And I wanted to try to work that trick into the pedagogical intermission so that it was working on readers, but there are so many ways that, that that could fail. Um, so I guess the trick is I, I asked students to um, answer some really horrific questions <laughs> in a free writing exercise um, that was supposed to help teach them that, in fact, the free writing exercise was anything but free. It had its own conventions, you know, this three minute free writing exercise in response to a question. Um I, I was hoping to use this kind of exercise to help them better understand what, um, as, as you mentioned, what I consider some of Bertolt Brecht's um, great failed works, um, to understand why they failed um, by understanding the way that convention and submission are part of our lives when we don't really recognize them, the way that they are submitting uh, students in the classroom, um, submitting to a, a terrible free writing exercise, for example, and dutifully writing their little paragraphs um, with, again, their conventional arguments that I was asking for. Um, I, I wanted all of that to help get them to a different perspective on Bertolt Brecht's revisions of plays that are usually translated as the yes-sayer or no-sayer that were sort of failed uh, versions of a no-play, Taniko, the Valley Hurling, that he had hoped uh, would teach the value of submission to a socialist revolution but actually were celebrated by the the Nazi party um, and oddly by Catholics um, as teaching a, a kind of submission to the Nazi cause or submission to religious learning. Um, this was not, of course, Brecht's intention, and he tried to revise the plays to make them work. But uh to work in the way that he wanted them to. Um, but only the first version of the play received a score by the composer Kurt Weill. And that version was the play that was done over and over again and, and did, um, have some function in the teaching of the Hitler youth. Um, so it, I, I wanted the students by, by recognizing their own kind of submission to, uh, pedagogical methods to understand um, both Brecht's failure in the play and the, the really difficult to teach lesson of the original no play that, that Brecht was using, um, which is a, a, t- a student agrees to be thrown off the mountainside because um, he becomes sick on a journey with his teacher. And uh, the there is a great custom that that if you become sick, you've defiled uh, a sacred journey and and must be thrown off the mountain. Um, So this is a a pretty hard lesson for American students to even take seriously. And I was trying to develop a pedagogical exercise that um, would help them understand what that lesson could mean in different cultural contexts and how, in fact, they submit regularly um, to what a teacher Says or demands. Um, so, in, in writing the Pedagogical Intermission, I, I tell the story of, of using this lesson plan in my graduate class. And then, as you alluded to at the end, once again, my, my students taught me more than I ever teach them. Um, uh, Paul Edwards, a remarkable student, used this whole experience in his own project and his own performance, um, in which he, he really. Uh, kind of used my strategy and and cast me in his in his production um, in a way that uh, analyzed the the whole experience of being a graduate student and the kind of strange rituals that are part of academic life, from giving up meals in favor of espresso um, to receiving diplomas written in dead languages um, it was really a fantastic. A fantastic presentation.
1: And if I'm remembering correctly, a Charlie Brown Christmas actually makes an appearance in there, yeah?
0: Absolutely. Uh, the won't... very, very sad <laughs> song. Yes. Epic.
1: Um so mm-hmm. kudos to you, Paul Edwards, um, if you're out there listening. Thanks. It was amazing. So we are speaking of failure, right? Um, we have totally failed to get through the entirety of the book because everything that you've been saying has been so fascinating, and there's so much it's to bigger. talk about. Um, no, no, it's total. This is great. I have no no apologies here because I think this was exactly what we needed to do. Um, but I'll mention a little bit just what's happening in some of the later chapters for listeners and then ask you to just kind of talk a little bit about one of the points um, to bring us to a close. So chapter sure. five um, looks at how modernists know inspired scholarship and performance in Japan. It's super interesting. Um, and for listeners who are particularly interested in film and cinema, this might be especially engaging. This is a chapter that looks really closely at the way um, that the films of Ozu adapted so-called right traditional performance to modernist cinema and it pays special attention to a story of floating weeds and looks at camera angles there and also to late spring the first one from 1934 the second one from 1949 this chapter also returns us to the theme of translation um, being an opportunity to think about misrecognition error and failure as opportunities for creativity and that brings Mm. us to the final chapter right chapter six um this is super interesting. We're not going to have time to really talk much about it, but it looks at the collaboration between Benjamin Britten and William Plomer in Curlew 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 River. I'm going re- to I'm going to yeah. jersify everything that I say. Um so there's <laughs> so much going on. It's super interesting. Um and you talk about this as a no derived church parable that also involves elements of gender drag, of cultural appropriation, um, and you talk about it in terms of um, queerly Christian submission. So I just want to like leave that there for listeners who are particularly interested in these sorts of issues. There's a whole chapter, and it's amazing. Um, now, the chapter also, and this is where I kind of want to ask you my final question before we move to our close, the chapter also considers Samuel Beckett's footfalls. Um, there's so much to talk about here um, but what I want to maybe close with is uh, something that comes from thinking about um, Beckett's footfalls, uh, the relationship between the text and Beckett and performers specifically, um, in generating, again, one of these larger themes um, that I think is a, a big, important takeaway of the book. Um, here's what the book says on page 240 when talking about this um, at the close of this chapter. It says, Are myopic definitions of agency- And assumptions of universal desires for a, quote, freedom that's defined in West-centric terms leads to misunderstandings of many cultural and political phenomena. And the book really closes by opening um, and opening out into lots and lots of different contexts briefly, but importantly, um, where reorienting in the way, so to speak, right, in the way that you're suggesting Mm. um, might be uh, perhaps a more productive way to go about thinking with And practicing in the context of these encounters than we might otherwise be doing. Um, So Carrie, did did you want to speak a little bit to that maybe as a way of kind of bringing this to a close?
0: Absolutely. Um, Again, my encounter with No had me asked me to question so much uh, about what I assumed. Um, I'm very clear in the book that uh, my sort of theoretical background is shaped by queer theory, feminist theory, um, and postcolonial theory. And I learned um through studying you no know, through falling in love with this art form in some ways, that there were a set of assumptions that those theories shared um that I think were causing me and and maybe some others to misunderstand the world um so the the assumption that that subversion is just a standard good and something that we desire in the world, that we should be subverting cultural norms, that we should be battling conventions, um, that we should be looking in the literature that we study for moments of subversion. Those had become critical habits for me. Um, And no was not going to be a subversive theater form um, in most ways or at least not conventionally subversive and the the artists um, in the 20th century who were responding to no and inspired by no many of the works that they created also weren't conventionally subversive and yet they were really interesting and um, in in the last chapter that started I account, um, how that made me think about my own contemporary moment where it seems, um, impossible for so many to imagine the, what would compel anyone to, uh, participate in a suicide bombing in the name of uh, a God, um, how that, how you could get there. And, and I think, um, it no helped me understand the ways that um, submitting to a divine being isn't so different from, um, say, a, a U.S. military member submitting to the notion of uh, spreading freedom and democracy and liberty around the world and risking one's life for that kind of um, metaphysical concept. But that really isn't so far from the idea that, that um, someone would would submit um, and, and uh, risk life for a divinity. Um, no, in part, taught me to think that way by, by teaching me to really question assumptions that have governed my thoughts and my habits of mind um, and, and the ways that I've taught and, and worked with students. Um, so... In the end, I I don't want to um, I didn't want that last chapter to sort of sound conservative or in any way supportive of terrorism, suicide bombings. But I wanted to to show how my study of no had helped me think differently about the the world that I'm living in and to recognize that um, freedom, liberty, subversion. We're not values that are held universally around the world um, and that, in fact, they really don't entirely govern our own uh, culture in the way that we assume they do. Um, So I I was hoping that that last chapter would really open up some of those questions, uh, not to provide answers um, exactly, but just to have us think differently and to think in a way that might um, help us accommodate and understand uh, cultural difference.
1: So now that we are at the conclusion of our interview, and there's so much more um, that we could talk about, right? I mean, we could spend another couple of hours talking easily. And I would love to if I'd we could. <laughs> um, but Carrie, in the absence of that opportunity, at least for now, is there anything in particular that didn't come up, um, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we close?
0: um. I, I suppose that that the the one thing that I would mention about this book is that um and and I, I, this did come up a little bit in my last uh, my last response, but one of my great fears about the book is that it would seem retrograde and conservative as I was questioning assumptions um from feminist theory and queer theory and post colonial studies that it would seem like i was I was sort of advocating. A, a conservative approach, in fact, um, so much of what I was able to realize in the book um, came through the internal critiques of of those fields and and um, many critics that that were um, using the tools for example of queer theory to um, subjected to a, a certain kind of critique. I feel like my book is very much in the spirit of that kind of work. Um, uh, Eve Sedgwick is a, is a really important uh, figure for me in that work. Um, Saba Mahmood and, and Sarah Ahmed also, are, I think, are doing that work. And I wanted my my book to be in their spirit um, what what Sedgwick calls reparative reading um, and exploring and another phrase that I love from Sedgwick, the middle ranges of agency, um, really looking at how um, black and white thinking, um, polarized thinking uh, leads us to some misunderstanding of our own lives and of the cultural materials that we explore in our work. Um, so, so I suppose that's the one disclaimer I, I want to make sure that that no one enters into the book thinking that it's um, conservative or that I'm in any way rejecting the theories that have been impo- so important to my thinking. I think of those those theories of having me having shown me a, a way to to try to get beyond that polarized dichotomous thinking. Um, and to, to connect once again to our cultural moment, um, I think that polarization, um, the, the tendency to lose the middle ranges or in the United States, the, the whole middle of the country um, and not communicate and not understand each other um, is, is one of the great problems we face. Um, so that, that's the one thing I wanted to mention. <laughs>
1: And now that the book is out, what are you currently working on? What's inspiring you lately?
0: So I've I've started a new project about audience participation in the theater um, and how audience participation uh, is used to and our attempt to teach lessons about race and gender. Um, The book right now is um, provisionally called Participate, and part of it is a, a history of forms of participation in the theater and the ways that that we kind of misunderstand immersive theater as this brand new and very important and very subversive thing um, when, in fact, um, participation has been central to the theater for a long time, um, its entire history. Um, but I really want to focus also on what audience participation is is trying to teach us, particularly about race and gender, um, and some of the, the methodologies of, of my first book are really entering in. So um, the, the book tries to include my own experiences as a participa- participant in uh, various theatrical productions as core anecdotes for each chapter. Um, so, so that's something that I learned to do in writing, learning to Neil, that I hope to also include in the new project.
1: Well, best of luck. Thanks for taking time to, to talk about this book. And it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us today and come back again soon.